What's the best thing about Switzerland? The flag's a big plus. So far this season, a lot of entirely unexpected and pretty wild stuff has happened to the White Stripes. Through all of it, Jack and Meg are getting a taste of what it's like to be an indie rock band that ekes out a living on the road. And like Ben Swank said when we opened the season, that's the dream. I mean, what more could a nobody band from a forgotten music scene hope for? As it turns out, a lot more. And they're about to get a sense of exactly what that means, albeit on a much smaller scale. I'm Sean Cannon from Third Man Records and Nevermind Media. This is Striped, the story of the White Stripes. Remember when I left you hanging at the end of episode two, right as the White Stripes are winding down their first West Coast tour in Denver, you know, with that uh, movie scene where somebody calls the bar looking for Jack? We're going to pick things up right there with Ben Blackwell. We're sitting there playing pinball, and the guy from behind the bar says, Hey, Jack? Jack White? Yeah. That was a phone call for you. Goes and grabs him. That typical, like, who knows I'm here? I didn't give anyone this number. I say to Jack, I'll send you the plane tickets. And he was kind of like, you're serious? I said, uh, yeah, I am. I, I have been from the beginning. All right, from the beginning. <laughs> you might be a little confused, so maybe we should back up even further. This time to December the 10th, 1999 in Melbourne, Australia, where the garage punk band The Donnas are doing a two-night stand at a place called The Corner Hotel. And trust me, this will all make sense in a minute. The gentleman you just heard is John Baker. He's a concert promoter from New Zealand and a big-time garage rock aficionado. He and a friend flew down to see the Donnas in Melbourne. They had tickets to both shows, so they go to the first one, and then... We'd actually met this guy that night who um, befriended us, and his name was Craig Bailey. He was asking about where we were from, and it turned out that we had mutual friends, and he said, well... You know, the following night, you know, you guys can stay with, with me and my, um, my girlfriend. Now John has this new friend, Craig, and they go to the second show the next night, which John said was perfectly uneventful. But then Craig invites John to a warehouse party after the show. And we went to this party, and it was kind of like a typical kind of post-show party, you know. a little bit dark, and there was a lot of local music and rock and roll types there. And in the corner of this room, there was... It was an old kind of ghetto blaster, but it was enough to kind of fill the space. And I started listening and was thinking, wow, this is kind of cool. So I walked over to it and um, it was this music I'd never heard before. It was kind of charged, it sounded sparse, and the voice that was singing, it sounded like it was coming from outer space or somewhere. It might have had something to do with the sound of the room, I'm not sure. And these songs were kind of catchy in a, in a real kind of garagey almost way. And I looked at the cassette and it was your typical kind of dubbed cassette. There was not much information on it, maybe a few scribbles, maybe there'd been other music on it before. Now at that point, John starts asking around to see if anybody has a clue who this band is. But no luck. So he just flips the cassette over and over again to keep listening. 
And this guy comes up and I said, oh, is this your cassette? What, what is this? And he goes, oh, this is a band called The White Stripes. They're from Detroit. I was like, wow, The White Stripes. John made a mental note of that, but as it so often goes, when you listen to way too much music, he sort of filed it away, didn't really think much more about it after heading back to New Zealand. Also around this time, John was booking underground acts on a small-scale tour circuit that included Japan, Australia, and his native New Zealand. And the idea was that if they could hit all three countries, it would make things more worthwhile for whoever he was working with. And that's when he discovered the one-man band Quintron. I loved his records, and I, I was working out how to get him to New Zealand. And this led me to Quintron's booking agent, who was a guy by the name of Dave Kaplan. And there's a name you recognize. So John asks Dave Kaplan for a copy of his roster to see all the bands that Dave repped. The roster was alphabetized. And at the bottom of the page, it says, The White Stripes. I went, hey, hey, that's, that's that band that I heard in Melbourne. So I go back to Kaplan and I say, ah, The White Stripes, um, how could I get in touch with them about them coming to New Zealand? And Kaplan says, well, you know, I only handle them in North America. You'd have to deal them with yourself. And he gave me Jack's number. I went, oh, okay, cool. And I thought, oh, I'll, just, I'll give it a crack. I'll give him a call. And this is before the Denver incident. In fact, this first call happens a couple weeks before that West Coast tour altogether, when Jack and Meg are finishing up a rehearsal at home. Now, John calls the number and asks for Jack White. This voice suddenly goes, yeah, uh, hi, this is Jack. And I went, oh, hi, hi, Jack. My name's John Baker. I'm calling from Auckland in New Zealand. And then said to him, um, oh, would you guys like to do, uh, come to New Zealand? And uh, got a response, something like, oh, yeah, sure. And his response wasn't over the top or really enthusiastic at all. And that's because, as Jack explains here in this clip from a 2010 Radio New Zealand documentary, he thought that uh, it, it wasn't real. I got off the phone and I said, there's some guy just called and he wanted to bring us to New Zealand. And we sort of laughed and thought that it wasn't true or was some crackpot or something. And tried to, I think, started discussing how he could have gotten our phone number. And uh, that led us to private investigators and calling the police. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, but uh, we were, uh, it was exciting to hear for a second, but we didn't believe it. So we sort of forgot about it quickly. Before hanging up, though, Jack gave John Baker an email address, and John, still determined to make something happen, started sending email after email after email. And slowly I'd get these, like, one-line, possibly one-word emails. Sure. Sounds good. And I was wondering, oh, my goodness, okay. I, you know, they're not taking me, uh, they're not taking me seriously. So I, I called back maybe a, a, a few weeks later and, and someone did answer and they said, oh, no, no, they're on, they're on tour. And then John figured out the White Stripes were playing in Denver that night. So he finds the name of the club, dials an international directory, and gets the number. And uh, there was a call after a sound check. It's a call for you. It's one of those things from a movie, you know. <laughs> There's a call for me. Who knows I'm even here? And, uh, yeah, there's kind of like a, is there a Jack White here? Jack White and here kind of like a... Uh, uh, a commotion and someone goes yeah that's me and then the phone's handed to Jack and I say to Jack come to New Zealand I'll send you the plane tickets 
he's sort of saying, hey, I'm serious. I, I really do want to bring you guys down. And well, I guess this guy means it. And he was kind of like, you're serious? I said, uh, yeah, I am. I, I have been from the beginning. Now it seems like Jack and Meg are finally convinced. Probably. <laughs> Maybe. The next step for John Baker is to book the tour and get him the tickets. There's only one small problem. I didn't have enough capital, though, to buy the plane tickets. So I thought, what am I going to do? At the time, I'd been doing some shows and working with a friend of mine called Amber Easby. And she used to put on these great kind of DIY shows for the, in the punks and hardcore scene that she was involved in. I'd sort of known John for quite some time and kind of worked, you know, with him in various capacities. And that's Amber. It wasn't unusual to get a call um, from John, you know, with him saying that he had an idea <laughs> that he wanted to pitch you. So I think he invited me over to his house, you know, and he pulled out a record and played me a song. <laughs> he played me Pretty Good Looking and said, I've got an idea. I want to try and bring this band to New Zealand. And I was like, that's great. That's such a great idea. <laughs> and then he said, I just need to find the money for the flights. I, you know, started to sense where this was going. And then he asked me for $5,000, which is ridiculous because I was 22 and I didn't have that kind of money. And I think she was a little gobsmacked at, at first, but also Amber's an incredibly, you know, easy guy and person to, to talk to and like, you know, really open-minded and, uh, and, and, and very liberal. So. She goes, I, I can't lend you the cash. But I had a credit card. <laughs> so I don't know why, but I agreed to max out my credit card um, and put the band's flights on it, but on the condition that I could work with him on the tour and do the door <laughs> at the Auckland show so I could make sure I, you know, could pay myself back. And I was like, oh, oh that'd be great or something like that. So that's what we did. And I remember I went down to the travel agent that was literally a stone's throw from my house in Newmarket in, in Auckland, introduced myself and, and, and told them that I wanted to um, uh, fly two people uh, from Los Angeles to Tokyo to Auckland and back. And I would like buy the Australian plane tickets from here. It's July at this point, and John's looking at a fall tour, which was just a few months away. That's not much time to book an international tour around the Pacific Rim. And John started working furiously to put all the pieces in place. You know, he threw together an itinerary with a couple shows in Japan, a week in New Zealand, a week in Australia. He also coordinated press efforts. You know, he got some records from Sympathy, helped increase their presence on local radio, and tried to secure some media coverage. But remember, while he was begging friends to max out their credit cards and rushing around to work out the logistics, Jack and Meg weren't seeing any of that. You know, they're still taking the word of some random guy that he's going to just magically fly him around the world for free. I tell Jack I've got the plane tickets. I need his address because I'm mailing them to him. And then he said something along the lines of like, oh, you're serious then. Of course I was. I was serious from the, I was serious from the get-go. But... As far as he's concerned, I'm just some voice 
So I send the tickets and then I think once they saw the tickets, they realized, oh, okay, this, this is happening. We're going to do it. For Jack and Meg, even if the tour went horribly, they still got a free trip to Japan, New Zealand, and Australia. So what did they have to lose? The same can't be said for John Baker. I mean, he was taking a pretty big risk. You'd find White Stripes records in some stores around those parts, but they were still basically unknown. And there was no real way to tell if international audiences would care at all. So John had pretty good reason to worry. And that only got worse as the tour approached, because after all that time and money, he started to wonder if the tour was going to happen at all. There was a slight area for concern in that Jack called me and he said, oh, there's been a bit of a problem with our passports. I was like, what? There's been a bit of a problem with our passports. And I was like, oh, no. And I looked at the record sleeves and I went, oh, my goodness. I've never seen people so white. They're in Detroit. There's a problem with the passport. And I was like, oh, no, I bought tickets for junkies. There's some, you know, there's some drug problem with them. I don't remember at the time, like, oh, no, I bought these tickets and these junkies aren't coming. The passport issue was resolved, and Jack and Meg got on a plane bound for Japan in late October 2000, with elder statesman Long Gone John, the head of their label Sympathy for the Record Industry, tagging along just for the hell of it. They do Japan, and I get maybe one-sentence reports from my friend in Japan. You know, English is a second language, and um, the shows were, were sparse because nobody in Japan knew who they were. And, uh, and this kid who wasn't a promoter had managed to book them into two places in Tokyo. And when they arrived, they told me that the shows were okay, they got looked after, but there wasn't a huge amount of people there. And then um, they get on the plane and they come to New Zealand. On the morning of Monday, October 30th, Jack, Meg, and Longon all step off the plane in Auckland. And now that John Baker's seen them in the flesh... He's finally able to breathe a sigh of relief. I've suddenly realized that, hey, they're not junkies. So I went out and it was a beautiful day. It was like the beginning of summer. And I know Jack's commented on like he felt like he, he'd arrived on Easter Island. It was probably blue sky, no wind, and it was really warm. And he was wearing this, he was wearing this battered kind of jacket. He was wearing these battered black Levi cords and brothel creepers and he looked really tall. I mean, he is tall, but, you know, with his brothel creepers, he was even taller. And Meg was dressed really tidily and they just looked like, oh, my goodness. You know, they looked like brother and sister and they'd arrived in, in Auckland and here they were, were with him. This cranky curmudgeon that was kind of their uncle or their dad or something. Even when we picked them up from the airport, like, I just don't think that I'd ever sort of seen anyone like them before. I don't know, like, when they came off the airplane, you know, like, they were wearing 
like leather jackets and creepers and just wanted to get outside to like smoke a cigarette and then wanted to go get like a burger and they just seemed like so foreign to me. (laughs) I don't know, so American. Turns out they wanted a burger so bad that they actually got Amber to take them to a local chain called Burger Wisconsin. Very American. Or so it would seem. New Zealand burgers are extremely different. You know, there's egg on them, there's beetroot. I think, like, I may have ordered them accidentally, like a lamb burger, and (laughs) I just remember, like, uh, the pure look of disappointment on their faces. (laughs) Jack and Meg quickly get over that disappointment, which is a good thing because they didn't have time for disappointment. Their schedule was too packed. The first of five shows in New Zealand wasn't until Wednesday, but John had arranged all kinds of press for the band. And not just some no-name college papers. Since New Zealand is a relatively small country, it was a little easier to get serious coverage. Well, Americans laugh at this, but, you know, we had three television channels at the time and the main news channels were TV1 and TV3 and they had kind of these magazine programs at night where they they had these great musical items. I had a good track record with them with throwing them odd crazy bands, you know, local and international. So I approached both the producers of the respective shows and they, and once they saw a photo of the band and who they were coming, they, they bit. Jack and Meg set up in a local studio owned by a guy named Bob Frisbee, where they find some random items laying around like uh, a giant old-timey megaphone that Jack ended up singing into on those news clips. You can still find the footage online if you poke around, and it's pretty choice. Now at the studio, they also cut this radio spot, since John bought some last-minute advertising on 95BFM, which was sort of a college radio analog that recently started playing their music. Hi, this is Jack White from the White Stripes. So what? And that's my sister Meg, the drummer. This weekend we're going to play at the King's Arms for Guy Fawkes. So if you're sitting on the verge, come and set something on fire with us. Saturday it's with the Rock and Roll Machine and DJ Skinny. Sunday we're playing with... So they're doing national TV and making ads for their shows. New Zealand might be a small country and all, but that's still pretty heavy compared to what they're used to in the States. And it looked like that promotional blitz might work. I remember at the end of the day getting ticket reports. And that particular Wednesday, you know, the, the, the sales had, had spiked. So begins the White Stripes tour of New Zealand, which took them all over the country's North Island. And the first three shows in Hamilton, Palmerston North, and Wellington are all relatively small. But the Palmerston and Wellington shows did sell out. So sure enough, John's strategy was working. And by the time they got back to Auckland for two shows at the King's Arms, one other thing is for sure. They made quite an impression on John Baker. So when we get to the King's Arms, you know, I've seen my first three White Stripes show and it's kind of evident that there's something going on and Jack and Meg have hit their stride. There's this duality like Meg's the backbone and the the innocence and, you know, the way she put her head to one side and look at Jack with his sticks poised like, you know, these macabre wands or, or knitting needles was, like, fascinating. And, and a lot of people picked up on that. And, you know, and, and Jack was the light and the shade and, and, and the mouthpiece. And 
they play without a set list. And Jack cues Meg during the songs with looks, head shakes, or one finger for two beats, or two, or three, or a hand to stop her. And there's this amazing communication going on, but you know, you suddenly realize that neither of them are stronger nor weaker. But then there's the way that that they intensely looked at each other went that went way beyond brother and sister. It was it was definitely something on a on a higher plane and it was intense and people picked up on that and were waiting to see what would happen next. My friend Cameron told me that when they first played Hello Operator at the King's Arms, he said to himself, thank God this band exists. And I agree with him because up until then, bands that were coming over basically were, were shit. And especially in Hello Operator, especially when Meg would do her part on the edge of the snare drum, it was kind of like this hypnotic Morse code from, a, like from another dimension. You'd kind of look at it because you'd, you'd heard it on the radio and then to see it live and then to see Jack crashing into it when he did, um, that's that's quite a memorable moment for me. And, and I know other people that, you know, that were sold on the band by hearing that song. Amber also remembers how those two shows at the King's Arms, which were sold out for crowds of around 400 people each, by the way, affected the locals. I think there was like a sense of like shock and awe at the end of the set, you know? Like, I think it was just one of those like great shows that kind of changed, kind of changed the way locally, like that people thought about music. And I remember days like after the show, like walking around town and hearing people like... (laughs) Like, seriously, like, people whistling along, like, to the tune of Pretty Good Looking, like, on the street. It sounds silly, but, uh, you know, that a show that size could have an impact, but it really did. And even more importantly, well, for Amber anyway. At the end of the night, I remember sitting down with Amber in the, in the bar next door and um, counting out the cash that had come through over the two nights. And I was able to pay Amber back her, her $2,700, which she was... She was <laughs> Uh, most happy to get back. Yeah, I know you were a little bit worried about that too. And now it's on to Australia. Touring Australia is a lot different than New Zealand, though. Not only is it 29 times bigger than New Zealand size-wise, but about five times more people live there too, which means touring the entire country would be a little tricky. So to avoid that logistical nightmare and all the extra travel costs, John and his local promoter buddy Luke figured out an easy workaround. They booked a full week of shows just in Melbourne, which at the time had almost as many people as the entire country in New Zealand. It's also famously welcoming to rock bands. That said, the first show at the Corner Hotel didn't create the greatest impression for Jack and Meg. So we head to the corner and our local guy Luke has booked us on the bill with Trans Am. And Trans Am are headlining, and they'd been to Australia a few times before. And, you know, the white stripes are the underdogs and are unknown. And I remember Trans Am were there when we got there. The backstage area 
isn't huge by any means, and it's got a fridge with drinks in it, you know, beers and candy bars, chocolate bars or something. But I remember Jack, I can't remember which member of Trans Am it was, and I was shocked. Jack went up and introduced himself, and he said, hi, I'm Jack White from Detroit. This guy kind of went, shrugged his shoulders and and kind of like a uh, big deal and then walked away from him. I was kind of like mortified. Jack kind of went, okay, looked at me and we went outside. He said, oh, let's not hang out in here. So we hung out in the car park and prepared for the show in the car park. And Jack and Meg play the opening set. You know, the crowd's not really there to see them, but they are still into it. And afterward, of course, the White Stripes don't hang out to see Trans Am play. So that's on Monday. And more shows happen at other venues. You got the SB, the Empress, the Ninth Ward, all with good crowds and all without cold shoulders. At this point, the band's about halfway through their run in Australia, and it's clear to John that his plan of trying to build some momentum in Melbourne is working pretty well. I'm noticing in, in Melbourne that there is a little bit of a buzz, and I'm thinking, oh, this is quite a clever move of Luke the local organizer and I, you know, we'll do one show, see what happens, do the next show, and then word was getting round. Unless you think it's all sunshine and lollipops, there were still some bumps along the way. They did a session at Corduroy Records, which specialized in direct acetate recording. It would have been really cool to have, but in the end, the session kind of went nowhere, and the tracks were famously lost for years. And then later in the week... They also did an in-store signing at Orgogo. And that was set for the Friday night. I was kind of unsure how it was going to work. Do people line up? You know, I'd watch Spinal Tap and what have you. It was slightly better than a Spinal Tap moment. I think maybe two fans came. One of them might have brought a koala beer with them. But there wasn't much action there at all. It was almost embarrassing, actually. It's like not many people turned up. Don't worry too much. Melbourne record stores redeemed themselves for the band. They did an in-store performance at Raoul Records the next day, which was absolutely packed. And then on Saturday, the White Stripes end up back at the Corner Hotel. And this time they open up for a band called Six Foot Hick. So we've done Monday in Melbourne. We've done Tuesday. We've done this recording session that I guess you could say was aborted. Nothing came out of it. We've done Thursday. We've done Friday. We've done Saturday. And that's that's six shows in the trot on the back of six six shows in, in New Zealand. And then it comes to the tote. And the tote is sold out and it's wonderful having a sold out tote show. But, you know, it, it's got a capacity of 300, and the place is so steeped in history. All these fantastic Australian bands have played there and, and American bands. And this was the way that Jack and Meg, when I finished their first Australian visit, was playing a sold-out tote. And I remember that the tote show was sweaty. People were people loved it. And obviously the word had got round, and they created a buzz. They kind of went from nothing to selling out the tote on the Sunday. And that was supposed to be all she wrote for the White Stripes Pacific Rim tour, and it would have been a great way to close things out. But earlier in that week, 
John realized that once they flew back to New Zealand, the band would have one last day in Auckland before heading home. And that got him thinking. So I called up Amber and said, hey, listen, let's do one more show. You've been booking shows at this great venue called Pizza Pizza. Pizza Pizza was this tiny Christian pizza parlor uh, that allowed locals to put a makeshift stage in so they could do small gigs once a week. With limited space and just a couple days to promote it, John wasn't expecting much, but he knew it'd be a good time regardless, you know, especially considering the date of the show. It was only going to be door sales, and it's on a Monday evening. And I kind of thought, nah, you know, we get 20, 30 people, it'll be fun. Because also, it was long gone John's 50th birthday. Uh, however, <laughs> that prediction of 20 to 30 people was slightly off. 180 people showed up to this tiny, tiny venue and people were just like begging to come inside and foolishly, we, we let everybody in. And people were like lined up, like up the stairs and like out onto the street. We felt bad turning people away. So we, <laughs> we let everybody in and you could not move. You could not move. And it was so hot. It was like everyone just kind of were crammed in there like sardines for two hours. The White Stripes get up and do their show and there's rapturous applause for them. And on that night, they could do no wrong. That Pizza Pizza show is probably one of the most memorable New Zealand shows. And the one that probably most people claim to have been there, but weren't there. So it was one of those shows, kind of like the Sex Pistols at the 100 Club back in 1976. At the end of that night, I was like, wow, wow, we've we've done it. And I... I Quietly to myself, I felt quite chuffed. It's like every show was better than the last one. And this show was it was was a really good way to go out on. And I remember doing the accounts that night for the tour and the next day giving Jack quite a substantial sum of money in cash to take back. And they'd done well over New Zealand and Australia. Okay, so that is a lot to chew on in the year 2000. And Jack and Meg got serious about the band. They started to click on a whole new level, put together a few pieces of the music industry puzzle, won some very important fans, and got out into the world. You know, like the world world. Like Blackwell said earlier this season, they pushed the rock up the mountain, inertia was taken over, big things were just ahead. So obviously it's smooth sailing from here, right? Uh, not quite. It's a big fucking lie. But if you're trying to say, if you're trying to keep screwing the band that you've started to screw. No, wait, we're doing it again. We're getting a little ahead of ourselves. You're going to have to wait till next season for that. Because that's all we got for this episode of Striped, the story of the White Stripes. I want to say a special thanks to Ben Blackwell, Ben Swank, and the rest of the Third Man crew. Thanks as well to everyone we talked to this season and to Radio New Zealand for letting us use some clips from their great audio documentary from uh, 2010 about the 10th anniversary of that Pacific Rim tour. You can find the whole thing online if you Google White Stripes in New Zealand. We get production assistance from Mark Charles, Kojin Tashiro, and Melissa Locker. And additional scoring in this episode is by Lone Wolf Gang. The biggest thanks of all, though, goes to the White Stripes themselves, Jack and Meg White, because without them, 
none of this would be possible. Oh, and we've also put together companion playlists for seasons one and two of Striped, so you can hear a lot of the bands and songs mentioned in the show, and maybe discover your next big musical obsession. You can find those playlists on your preferred streaming platform or by perusing the Third Man social channels. I'm your host and producer, Sean Cannon. I'll see you next season. So we left Palmerston North. I remember we stopped to look at the sky. Now, before that, Jack had said to the drummer of the rock and roll machine, what's that stuff in the sky? And Paul told me, he said, what do you mean what's that stuff in the sky? And Jack said, that stuff in the sky, all that light. And Paul said, they're stars. And... We stopped in the middle of kind of nowhere with no street lights or light pollution and we looked at the sky and obviously the stars look different to Americans or anyone from the Northern Hemisphere because it's the other way around, but also they're incredibly visible and they sparkle in a way like times I've been to the Northern Hemisphere, they, they don't sparkle. So Jack, Meg and Long Gone John were able to look, look at the sky and see these stars shining. And, you know, that was, that was kind of a cute moment because I've experienced it subsequently with other bands, especially Japanese bands. They, they look at the sky and they've, they've never seen the stars, I guess, that naked before. So Jack and Meg were able to take, take, take in the stars. <laughs>